Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everyone. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast, starting out by reminding you that there is a website called wealthformula.com, and you should check it out for all sorts of free resources available to you. Uh, One of the things that you should consider, if you have not already joined and are an accredited investor, you should join our investor club. All you have to do is sign up. You go to wealthformula.com and you'll see something there that says investor club. This is for accredited investor. Accredited investors are investors who make $200,000 per year or $300,000 per year if filing jointly or have a net worth of $1 million outside of your personal residence. If you meet those criteria, you are an accredited investor. You don't have to apply for anything. You either are or you are not, just like being pregnant. You are pregnant or you are not. It's not something you need to apply for. It's very clear once you do, uh, once you just look at your own finances. Anyway, uh, that's where the magic happens. Check it out. Wealthformula.com, credit investor club. Now, Let's talk about this crazy time, right? And specifically, let's talk about the stock market. Now, a few days ago, we had the worst single-day loss in U.S. uh, stock market history in the Dow Jones Industrial. And then the next day, we had the best day in the Dow Jones Industrial in 80 years. Now, I have no idea what kind of volatility there will be between the time I actually, you know, record this podcast and by the time you listen to it, because usually, you know, there's at least three or four days in between. And right now, three or four days is like, you know, (laughs) night and day in the stock market in terms of volatility. But don't you think this is kind of ridiculous? I mean, seriously, this kind of volatility is exactly why over, you know, throughout my adult life, I've stayed away from stocks. The reality is I just don't get it. I don't get them. How does, for example, you know, this, this, uh, the, the fall uh, of the Dow down into the 1800s happened because, well, I guess the Congress couldn't get their fiscal stimulus through. Okay, everybody knew they were going to do it eventually, right? So then all of a sudden the, 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 the floor drops out, right? And then a day later, 
there's some I the, there's some agreement in uh, and everybody gets excited three trillion dollar thing going through. Uh, everybody's excited about that and boom, just like that biggest day in American no no biggest day in eighty years for Dow Jones. Um, again, I, I I don't get it. You know, I just don't get it. Uh, for example, how does, okay, so you take this fiscal stimulus and the optimism that people have in the market. I don't understand why there's optimism, right? I mean, the economy's frozen. For all practical matters, there's about a 90% effective unemployment right now, meaning nine out of 10 people at least are not going to work and can't go to work, right? That That's nothing that, any kind of monetary policy, any kind of fiscal policy, none of that is going to make a difference. This is a health, uh, you know, a health policy type situation right now. That's the only way it's going to get better in the economy. Uh, now, listen, the economy is frozen, and that's for sure. And to me, there is no doubt that there's going to be a deep recession. It might be short. But there will be a deep recession. It's just unclear how long it's going to last. But the idea of the value of stocks like going up and down in the Dow Jones Industrial by, you know, a couple thousand points over a day or two is just crazy, right? What does it all mean? Anyway, to me, the best word that describes this economy and the markets right now is uncertain or uncertainty. And as an investor, that is probably the worst feeling you can have. If you feel uncertain right now, one thing that you will really benefit yourself in doing is to remember what this feels like so that the next time it happens, you'll actually be prepared for it. You know what? It's going to happen again. Something will happen again Black swan events, they call them. They happen once in a blue moon. And guess what? They still happen. And every time, everybody's really surprised about them. Now, it's not like I thought this was going to happen. But the reality is that it is something like this can happen at any time. It really can. And we just have to be prepared for that kind of thing. So as I've made clear on you know several times uh, in this podcast, particularly last week and last week's podcast, et cetera, uh, the webinar that we did with Christian and Rod, um, I hedge these types of uncertainties in life and financial life through contractual agreements that I have made with life insurance companies. And these life insurance companies, I trust these contracts because they've consistently paid through the Great Depression, multiple world wars, bank failures, cash value life insurance policies like Wealth Formula Banking, which we've been talking about, really does help me sleep well at night. Now, again, we spent a lot of time on this last week. And if you're not sold on the concept and don't want to get a policy or don't, you know, don't think it's for you, totally fine. I get it. But <laughs> 
you know, I think it's just really important to me that you understand it. So if you don't, if you don't, if you have another way you're going to get some sort of security in your life, then do it, but get security in your life. I just want you to understand this as a possibility. Um, because I actually really believe in these life insurance products. And I think historically they've been more stable uh, than banks, right? I mean, positive payouts, dividend payouts uh, since the Civil War. That's pretty good. Uh, anyway, this week what I want to do is give you another way that you can get exposure to these kinds of, you know, what I would call hyper-stable assets. Uh, you know, you can get exposure to these same kinds of life insurance companies uh, without having a policy yourself. You could actually buy someone else's policy. You could, uh, and this is called life settlements. That's what these are called. Now, if you've never heard of these uh, strategies, if you've never heard of life settlements, I'm not surprised. It's not something most retail investors will ever know about, never hear about from their wealth advisors. Meanwhile, you've got the ultra high net worth folks like Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett buys about $600 million per year worth of life settlements. Bill Gates has about a half billion dollars of life settlements on his balance sheet. Uh, why? Well, if you're curious, uh, you are going to want to listen to this interview that I did with Tim Wright from ASR Alternative Investments when we come back. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, I have Chief Marketing Officer of ASR Alternatives, Tim Wright, uh, to speak with us a little bit about this asset class known as Life Settlements. Tim, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure to be on your podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, too bad in these uh, circumstances. I know your your practice. This is a good way to practice social distancing, though. We have a screen between us and uh, yeah. several thousand miles. You're in Dallas. I'm in Santa Barbara, California here. Well, listen, um, again, thanks for coming back on the show. Um, and uh, I want to start out talking about some basics uh, before we kind of launch into this entire concept, because it's really based around, again, um, you know, permanent life insurance. And, and we have been speaking in the last week or two a fair amount about permanent cash flow life insurance concepts. Um, we've been talking about 
you know, uh, banking and, and, you know, IU, leveraged IULs and things like that. Uh, but let's go back before we, you know, kind of launch into life settlements. Tell us about, you know, the role of life insurance companies in times like these, right? In times of uncertainty and what we can glean from the past when it comes to the financial stability of these types of companies. Yeah. So let me just first by saying, if you're talking to, you know, Buck about life insurance at all, I mean, one of the things that you'll notice with us is that we're very much aligned with the insurance industry. And if you love, you like life insurance for the assets uh, or the the valuable um, characteristics that life insurance has, you'll really enjoy and appreciate life settlements because there's so many similarities. So when you go back in time, Buck, you have to go back almost, well, over 100 years to, to 1911 when all this started. And that's when the first, they didn't call it life settlements back then, but that's when it all started, 1911. In fact, there was a court case that made this all legal back in 1911, a Supreme Court case. So we, we have a lot of history, but the reason that we love the asset of life insurance is that it does go back 150 years, the legal reserve life insurance system that I'm sure you talk about with your clients all the time is what works well for our asset class. And what does that mean? That means when there is a death claim, guess what? It's going to pay out. And the life insurance company, that policy, that is the underlying asset behind this whole thing. And that's the beauty of it. Yeah. And so we talk about specifically the, the emphasis again, going into, you know, I I've called this, uh, you know, I mean, obviously it's a debatable issue, but perhaps the most stable asset uh, in American history in that regard, uh, in, in the regard that really, if you look back at since the civil war and you take a company like, you know, Penn Mutual or Mass Mutual or any of these companies, uh, they have not only, you know, continued to follow through on their contracts um, since you know, through the Great Depression, uh, through through multiple uh, world wars and and you know Korean War, hyperinflation, et cetera, but they've actually managed to not only pay the contractual uh, you know required payments, but they've actually even paid dividends, and so that created a significant, um, I guess, a a loyalty, particularly around you know people who lived through very very hard times. I remember hearing that the people who lived through the depression, for example, typically they would be people who had really either kept their money in cash or they kept it in life insurance and they didn't really trust anything else because as the rest of the world crumbled around them, their life insurance policies never failed them. They became the sources of liquidity in, in, in addition to investments. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, that, that great depression taught, all of our grandparents a valuable lesson. And uh, unfortunately, I think we're coming back around here as we see some of the stuff that's going on right now in the market, especially there's a flight to safety, but for many years following the depression, that's what people did. They, they built, built up cash value in their life insurance policy. They used it for loans. They used it for tax-free retirement. And we've gotten away from that as a society 
uh, I think that's going to start to swing back as time time goes on. I really do. Well, I think part of it happens, uh, you know, in my my opinion, what seems to happen is that the farther we get from really, uh, you know, bad financial uh, situations, you know, the farther we get from 2008, the more we fall back into those habits. The Great yeah. Depression lasted for many, many years to people and there wasn't the type of safety net nets that there were even through the last financial crisis. And I think those kinds of things really hit people and they remind them that, Hey, upside is great, but you know, what is your, you know, what, what, what is, uh, what kind of investments can you make that are maybe less sexy, but you know, you won't be up at night. So I think that follows in this now. Um, you let's talk about, for those who don't know, I mean, what exactly, you know, what exactly is a life settlement? Can you, uh, can you kind of describe the process? I know you talked about something, you know, really starting back in around 1911. Maybe you could go through that story. Yeah, the Grigsby versus Russell story is a great one. There was a doctor who was uh, taking care of a patient and the patient could not afford for the services of that doctor. And uh, the insured did have a policy and he said, well, in, in exchange for dollars, can I give you this death benefit? And uh, he did. He gave it, gave it to them. That person ended up dying. The doctor went to file the claim and the claim was denied. And at that point, that brought up the big question, can you gift or give or sell your policy to someone? And that ended up going to the local courts went all the way up to the Supreme court took a while for that to happen. But when that happened, that the, the judges decided that, you know what, at that point uh, they decided your insurance policy is your property, just like your car, like your watch, like a house, you can do whatever you want with that policy. They do not have to have an insurable interest to give or gift or sell the policy. They do have to have an insurable interest you know, Buck, for, for example, if I said, hey, you know what, Buck, I'm going to take a policy out on you and I'll pay the premiums. I can't do that because I don't have an insurable interest in Buck. If we were true business partners in, let's say, an LLC, that would be fine. But in this case, we couldn't do it. But Buck could sell me his life insurance policy. Now, 80 years went by, Buck, before there was really ever a, an industry that was created in the 90s and certainly in the 2000s that went on. That was a bit of the Wild West. We'll talk about that in a moment. So the insurance companies love that 80 years because this wasn't something that was going on a whole lot. But when push came to shove and there was an opportunity for someone to sell their policy, they went all the way back to 1911 and recognized that this was a very established law. All right. So, so you hit on, let me, let me ask you this. I mean, I, it may seem obvious to you and me, uh, but just uh, to put this into you know perspective, why would the insurance companies not want you to to uh, sell your life insurance policy? Well, the insurance companies do a lot of great things. Okay, they offer protection, tax free growth, um, all the you know, borrow from your cash value life. They, they they offer security for your family and your business. But the one thing we know about life insurance policies is many of them lapse, mm-hmm. and that is the insurance company's profit. So for them to come out and say, yeah, go ahead and sell it, no problem, back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, that wasn't something that they were just going to voluntarily do. 
So yeah, I mean, and and I've emphasized this before. We did a webinar on hedge. It's it's there's a, a site uh, we did a I did a webinar on called hedgetheeconomy.com, and we we covered this there a little bit. But you know, one of the things that people um, when they first see this kind of um, you know, this kind of investment, they they think, well, gosh, it's kind of morbid. But in reality, let's think about who that person who is selling their life insurance policy is. Who is that? Well, Tim, why don't you answer that? Who is that person and why is it beneficial for them uh, to uh, to sell their policy? Well, it's interesting. We've been in business for 15 years now. And if you ask that question 15 years ago, people truly would have no idea uh, of that of that answer. But because you see on Fox and CNN and a lot of networks advertising companies like Coventry and Harbor life, life settlements, you know, people are more aware of it because they're seeing these commercials, right? They're seeing things in the newspaper and online. Um, so, so the reality is the, 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 the insureds who are selling their policy and this was what it really was what the number one, I guess, objection today. It's really not, but let's address it. Morbidity. Well, people say, well, gosh, isn't it more, but I got to wait for somebody to die before I'm actually going to profit. Well, you know, we do things a little bit different. We don't just buy one policy. We can talk about that offline. But the reality is the people that sell their policies are fairly wealthy. They have bought larger policies, a million to $10 million policies for estate planning purposes. Mm -hmm. They're sophisticated individuals who went to their CPA, went to their estate planning attorney, and said, you know what, Bob, I don't need this anymore, or I can't afford it, or my, fam- my family is, is out of the house, my kids are out of college, my business is sold, whatever it might be, I don't have this need for this insurance policy anymore. And by the way, they're expensive to own, right? I mean, right. they're great to have, but they're expensive to own. So the CPA says, well, why don't you sell your policy? And I still think this happens to a certain extent. People will say, well, wait a minute, I didn't know you could do that. I think a lot of people do know you could do it now. So that starts the whole process of discovery, figuring out you can sell it. How do I sell it? How much do I sell it for? What's that procurement process? It's a lot like a house. So that's basically, hopefully that answers that question. No, it does. And I think that's an important distinction, right? You're not you're not going after people in, you know, pulling a life insurance policy off their deathbed. We, these are people that are looking irrationally and saying, okay, I don't really need this thing. And rather than just, okay, my kids are fine. They don't need this money, but I really, you know, I could use a little bit more cash uh, while I'm still living here. And if they're going to bring it back to their insurance company, the insurance company would be happy to give them their cash value because it's almost certainly not going to be anywhere near what the death uh, death benefit is. So really what they're saying is, okay, where can I get the best money for this? And it works out to their advantage to actually sell it because they're going to get more from a company uh, as you dis- described, you know, the Coventries and the Harbors that are, are t- you're buying these things and brokering these things out than they are from their insurance company's cash value. So that, um, I think, is an important distinction to understand. You're actually helping people. You're not, Very much. you know, you're not a vulture. You're waiting for them to die. You're actually doing them a service by giving them more money today. I mean, just think about it right now, okay? Say somebody's got, you know, somebody is in their 70s or 80s and uh, the market 
just tanked by 30% and they have funds, but they're like, you know what? I don't want to keep withdrawing money from a market like this where 30% has gone down. What? Maybe I should sell a policy. Maybe I should do that. That would be a good way so that, you know, I'm not, you know, burning through all of this money that just went vanished uh, in the equity market. So that's, that's the kind of way you have to uh, uh, kind of see this. Hey, Buck, one, one thing I want to point out too to your listeners is that it's a real discreet asset. If I have a cash crunch, and you know that many people do, sadly, enough based on what just happened with people laying, business people laying off their workers, cash flow is short. I, I don't have to sell my house. I don't have to sell my car. I don't have to sell my country club membership. I can literally sell a policy. It might take me a month, might take me a couple months to sell it like it would a house. But no one has any idea what just took place. And instead of lapsing the policy, like a lot of people do out of desperation because they can't pay their premiums, for example, I'm not saying that everyone in this situation is in that boat, but some Mm -hmm. are. Instead of lapsing that policy, now we're going to take that piece of paper that's worth nothing to the person and sell it for maybe 10, 20, 30 cents on the dollar. That is helping this generation out a lot. Right. So um, you talked about this a little bit there. You know, one of the questions I get is, is this legal? Well, obviously it is legal. There's a Supreme Court uh, Supreme Court case that that made this legal way back. Who is who are the players? Right. I mean, this is a this becoming a retail asset, things that people could like you and me, accredited investors typically. Uh, could participate in is a fairly recent thing, but it's not new, uh, you know, to, to larger institutions. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's about 95% of the whole market is institutionalized. So you're going to see hedge funds, uh, banks, insurance companies, in fact, are big investors in, in this as well, not buying their own policies, but buying other insurance companies' policies. So, the retail side of this has been around for probably 20, 25 years. Say the retail, the mid to high net worth individuals. But um, I'm always surprised, and maybe I shouldn't be because I've been doing this long enough, 12 years I've been doing this, that there are so many people that are really sophisticated individuals. I mean, your, your uh, audience, for example, I've talked to a number of them, really, really bright, smart people, but they don't know about this. And that's because Wall Street isn't going with the big houses, the retail houses, and buying these for the big brokerage houses. So you're not going to hear about this from your financial advisor. What You name the company, okay? There's a hundred thousands of them out there. You're not going to hear about it from them. And that's one of the reasons that I think even sophisticated investors aren't educated on life settlements. Yeah. And meanwhile, you've got Berkshire Hathaway buying a couple hundred million dollars of life settlements and doing arbitrage with them. You've got, you know, Bill Gates has a big portfolio, I understand. So this is this is stuff that's been around. Talk about, um, you know, so we have this, you know, obviously when I first learned about the concept of life settlements, I was like, that's great. That's a great idea. And I want a piece of that, right? Um, when I started doing due diligence, and this is ultimately how you and I met, um, I realized there was a little bit of a, I guess there was a little bit of a troubled history, you can say, uh, in this asset class, uh, as it you know really first started out becoming available to mom and pop investors, and particularly maybe around the AIDS crisis, 
um, and that that sort of thing. Do you want to talk a little bit about sort of the the Wild West uh, of the past and and what kinds of things have been uh, you know that you and and more of the more uh, you know the the, the uh, straight shooters in the industry have uh, done to to you know create more of a regulated environment. Yeah, it's really a, a great story. It's a fun story to kind of go through because it gives you the full scope of where we've come from. But yeah, if you went back to the late 80s, early 90s, as most of, especially a lot of you have a lot of doctors on here know that our country is going through a really rough time with the HIV AIDS epidemic. And we're talking about another epidemic here, a pandemic. And it was a scary time for a lot of people. And so a lot of the AIDS patients, the full, full-blown AIDS patients, they were 30, they were 40, they didn't have much of an estate, but they had these, you know, policies they had through work or they bought a small policy through time and they had 50 or $100,000. Well, what was happening is investors came along and said, well, listen, I'll buy this for 25, 30 cents on the dollar. And they have a life expectancy of less than two years. Remember, it was a viatical, less than two years is what the definition of that is. They, had a, they were terminally ill. And everybody kind of won in that situation because here you have this person that was going to you know, live out the remaining years in dignity, have a little bit extra cash to spend. And then the investors were also getting a, a payout upon that death benefit. That concept was a real pure concept. That's how, that's how it started. But because it was new, it was not regulated, unfortunately, and it wouldn't have been because it was so new at the time. Well, there were some bad actors that came along. And in the, you could say all 90s, from 91, 92, all the way to really 2004, there were some good players, but the, the bad actors really outweighed in terms of the media and the voice of this industry. So if you heard about it or you did a search online back then, you saw all the bad stuff that was going on. Well, thankfully, by the mid-90s, late-90s, start regulation started to kick in. But it really wasn't until the mid-2000s that there were regulations on both sides of the market. So what I mean by that is if you think about a real estate transaction, you have a sell side. That's the insurer who's 85 wants to sell his policy. And then you have a buy side. I'm the person that wants to go buy the house or, in this case, buy that policy. Well, there was a lot of greed and people taking advantage of the senior citizen market when selling their policy. And that was something they, they dealt with with a pretty heavy hand. There was companies that were really doing some really bad things. I won't go into the details. You could probably go into American greed and hear some of them. We started 15 years ago. So we were kind of in that mix. So what we decided from day one is, listen, there is great opportunity for everybody here the insurer who's selling our policy, the investors, us as a company, the advisors out there that are offering this strategy to people. So, you know, uh, pigs get fed, hogs get slaughtered, right? The old saying. So what we said is, listen, we're going to go above and beyond and add a level of transparency into our business that no one else is doing. And so that really helped uh, catapult our business because before you would talk to a company, they wouldn't tell you anything. In fact, you might not even know the insured's name. You might not know how old they were. It was kind of a, hey, trust me, I got this group of policies over here. We're just going to have you put money into it. And a lot of those ended up being pretty negative uh, overall. So we have really attempted and tried and, and really perf perfected this process of making sure that not only is there a level of transparency, but we're following 
all the regulations that are fully established now. When you go into 2010, 11, 12, even more things came out. So if you're a bad actor or if you're a Wild West guy working in 2020, you're going to be doing that for about a month and someone's going to be knocking on your door and asking a lot of questions. So we're very proud of the way we set this up. The companies that we work with are phenomenal companies and we're really proud of the whole process. Well, you talk about the process because even that is very controlled. I mean, you don't go out, you're not knocking on people's doors. I mean, you, there's, there's a, there's a process that, that, that you, um, as the master fund, uh, go through to acquire these, that is no different from the way Berkshire Hathaway is right. I mean, you want to talk a little bit about that process? Yeah. I'd like to talk about the provider network. The providers are really the ones that, you could say, oh, kind of oversee the whole process. Without a licensed provider, you could never do this. And I kind of view that as kind of like the broker in the real estate transaction. You can do some for sale by owner in real estate. It doesn't happen a whole lot. Why? Because it, it, something gets, the ball gets dropped and there's something that happens and it ends up being negative. So that's why you go through a broker typically in real estate. Well, it, it, sometimes I think of that, that, broker that you're talking about life settlements is almost title insurance, right? Yes, you're right. It, it is. They, they're the equivalent to a title company actually in the real estate transaction. So you, you want to make sure that you're going through, and that's what we do, licensed providers. Now, what do they do? A licensed provider works with both sides of the life settlement world. We have on one side, the buy side, which would be us, ASR, alternative investments. And then the other side, you have the sell side. So the sell side is really represented by a couple people. One of them is going to be a broker, a life settlement broker that's working with insureds and the insured themselves. So, you know, you have a client who's 85 years old. He probably doesn't have the wherewithal to go to the provider, but the life settlement broker does. And so at that point, there is a process that they go through. They decide they want to sell so they do a HIPAA release form. They get the life expectancy analysis on typically one or two companies right out of the gate. They do a full review on the policy to ensure that it's transferable and that it will pay out upon uh, the person dying. And then once all that's established, then the provider would open it up to a company like us and other companies and say, all right, we've got the Smith policy. He's 85 years old. He has a life expectancy of 60 months. Do you want to start bidding on this? And at that point, we say yes or no, depending on our available funds. And if we have the available funds, we say absolutely. And so we start that process. So, and at that same bid, you've got all the major players who want to do it the right way, right? I mean, you've got the banks, you've got the hedge funds, you've got Berkshire Hathaway, all those uh, doing it the same way. So this is kind of the tried and true way of doing that. That's right. Um, let me uh, shift a little bit and ask you this. Um, when you, you mentioned that there's the, the bidding, right? Um, what, is, what is your, what is the, uh, the master funds buy box? Because, you know, we talked about how Berkshire Hathaway actually buys a lot of different policies. They buy younger people, might hold them for a couple of years and then sell them to somebody else, you know, because that person may have developed a health problem and all of a sudden that becomes a more valuable tool. It's an, a completely different model. That's not what really kind of the philosophically what you guys uh, have, I 
think or you guys are about, but what kinds of things do you look at as a as a master you know master fund to potentially add to your portfolios or philosophy? Yeah, and you can Buck, you can look at this in any business. There's going to be some that are really aggressive in any business, and some that are more conservative. ASR is definitely more on the conservative side, and here's what I mean by that. What we're looking for is a really unique policy, and they all kind of look about the same, but of course they're all different. We're looking for a policy where the insured is about 85 years old. They have a life expectancy of about five years, 60 months. A life expectancy come in months, not years. We're looking for a policy that's institutionally rated at A or better. It can be A minus, but A minus or, or better. Uh, so this is institutional paper that we're buying. The policy has to be beyond the contestability period. Uh, that's if it's below two years, which is contestability in insurance uh, in, in the insurance world. That's called a wet policy. We stay away from wet policies. Why? Because the insurance company could, if they suspected something was odd uh, in the process, could come back and contest that. Once it's beyond two years, they can't do that. We also look at the policies that do not have open suicide clauses. Our maturities, we call them deaths, are not caused by suicide. I don't think we've ever had that. But we want to ensure for our investors that if there was an open suicide clause in a policy, that that would not come back to hurt us if if that's what in fact happened to to have the maturity. So there's there's a number of things. Um, Person has to be a US citizen, the policy size is between one and five million. I'd say on average about three million. That's the death benefit, not what we pay for it. So there's a few things like that that fall into this parameter, and we won't even look at a policy. Right. And you're also policy. looking for older people and yeah, people with health problems. Eighty-five health yeah, problems. Underlying health imp- Yeah. The the health impairment. We're looking for health impairments. Now, here's a combination. If you're 85 and you have a life expectancy of five years, and I should have just said this because it's so obvious to me and you, but I'll say it for everybody, is that you have health impairments. If you're 85, you have health impairments, but you could be a healthy 85. So what we're looking for is not an 85-year-old with a 90-month LE. We're looking for an 85 that has a five-year LE. One other thing I'll clarify just so people understand, and, and this is something I learned uh, and, and, you know, just through my uh, background in life insurance, um, is that Two-year contestability, what is that? Most insurance policies, most insurance policies, basically after two years, you know, they have to pay, right? They have to pay, whether it's, you know, suicide, whether it's, you know, you know, they, they can't go back and research stuff after two years. It's basically done, right? That's, that. Am I, is that right in terms of the way I'm talking? Yeah, about? they have two years to do all of that. And if they don't do it by then, all bets are off and it's going to pay off. And, and that's, that's been legally challenged over the last 150 years. And there's, it's, it's really, really um, solid ground. Now, let me ask you this, because you just mentioned, again, that this was a bidding process and you have your buy box. And if you're talking about a buy box of people who are 85 and have, you know, other problems, comorbidities is what we call them in the business of medicine. Um, what? I mean, this, I, I have to ask you, even though it sound, it may sound a little morbid right now, but are those policies going up in price because of coronavirus? Because those are the people who are most likely 
to, you know, be affected and ultimately have the highest mortality? It's, it's, it's probably too early to tell, to be honest. I will say that our provider network, and there's, there's about 25 licensed providers. There's probably about 10 that are good size around the country. We, we're not exclusive to any one of them. We'll work with anyone that's out there. But we have a few that we get most of our policies through, and we've had these conversations with them in the last few days. It's, it's not substantiated, but anecdotally, there are people that certainly have taken a massive hit and they're looking for liquidity. And so the, 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 uh, the phones are ringing a little bit more with companies that are brokers and providers looking to um, really procure those policies. The other side of it, which is exciting for us, is that you know, we're, we're not an institutional player. You know, like you said earlier, we're, we're a retail player that operates funds. And so when we think about the institutions out there, what they're doing, what we see them doing is just holding off a little bit, right? They're, 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 they buy 95% of the policies out there. So when they hold off, prices drop a little bit because there's not the competition, supply and demand curve. And so, again, a little too early to tell, but we're, uh, we're, there's always an ebb and flow in this business. Seeing prices are potentially going lower, even though the risk is actually higher to these people um, for uh, for for the fund at least to buy something right now. Um, right. So, uh, okay. So we've talked a lot about. I think it should be pretty clear what the benefit of this kind of thing is. There's no such thing as something without risk, right? So tell us about the you know what are the risks of this kind of investment, and you know just in put it in perspective compared to some of the other things we consider as safe investments. Well, you're right. I mean, this is going to be on the lower scale of risk. Why? Because you have major, major insurance companies that are backing the policies. They're the ones paying them out, but you have a couple of, a couple of uh, risks that we like to talk about right up front. We don't shy away from a risk and they're really obvious risks. Actually, there's nothing really too surprising about them. And the two are longevity and illiquidity. So when a third-party medical underwriting company comes back and says, well, the, Mr. Jones has a 60-month LE, they're not saying that Mr. Jones is going to die in 60 months. What they're saying is there's a 50% chance that he'll die before or he'll die after that LE. So if Mr. Jones dies in 70 months or 80 months, we're still fine. We can still make money well over the life, uh, the life expectancy. If Mr. Jones lives um, 120 months, then there's going to be some additional risk because the return that we were shooting for, we're not going to get. But this is why we buy multiple policies. It's not just one at a time. That's longevity, which is pretty odd. Now, I will say the opposite is also true. If the person dies earlier than that five years, uh, let's say they die in one or two years, then the return is much higher at that, at that point. The illiquidity is a risk because this is going to be money that you're not going to want to touch for quite a long time, three to seven years. It could go as long as 10. What we try to do is close out funds as quickly as we can, uh, as we can, even if that means selling them in the, uh, selling a policy in the seventh or eighth year. So the illiquidity is perfect. It's a perfect connection with qualified money. I'd say 60, 70% of the money that we bring in is uh, from an IRA, it's from a 401k rollover, a SEP, 
something that is qualified. Why is it a good marriage for qualified money? It's because you can't touch your qualified money for a long time anyway. And it just grows tax deferred and then you go from there. So those are the two big ones. There's a couple others I'll just share with you. Track record, working with a company that has one, which we do. Uh, Third-party escrow agents. I don't know if we have time to get into all that. Maybe not, but we work with some of the very best third-party companies that you can. These are third-party administrators. Making sure that you have a good bid process so you're not overpaying for policies. If you're if you're new in this business and you don't know who the players really are, you can get caught up in a little bit of that overpaying for policies and mitigating the premium call exposure. And the way we do that, because as you know, as I said earlier, these premiums are quite a bit every year. So what we do is we escrow premiums within the acquisition cost when we buy a policy for a number of years. And so it would not be uh, prudent for us to buy a policy and have only one year of premium in it. It might be two or three, or, or excuse me, might be four, five or six years of premium. And that's kind of our average. So those right there are the risks and then how we mitigate them a little bit about that as well. So uh, many, many uh, people know already, we, uh, we work with ASR within um, you know, our accredited investor group. This type of investment is uh, limited to accredited investors. And uh, Tim uh, and uh, actually Stephen uh, Ziedi as well would probably be, uh, will probably be joining us, but we'll be doing a webinar for our credit investor group, probably to get a little bit more information, which we can't really get into necessarily in, in this kind of forum for our credit investor group sometime uh, later on this week, you should get an email on that. If you are in the investor club, Tim, uh, is there anything else uh, that you can tell us to wrap this up and, and have any sort of, you know, overall big picture on how to look at this stuff? Well, yeah. I mean, I, you know, like I said, I've, I've been in this business for a long time. We've raised a lot of money. We've had, we've owned a lot of policies. And when we look at the foundation of someone's portfolio, we, we think of cash, right? We think of cash. I think right above that somewhere, and this is certainly debatable, but I do believe that life insurance, whether that's permanent life insurance or life settlements or and life and settlements, really creates a nice bedrock. You know, if you're building your house on a solid foundation, you've got a nice, you've got a nice foundation of those three things, enough cash to live on for a period of time. You've got your life insurance, you've got your life settlements, and then you just build from that. Again, that could be debatable, but the reason that I am so convicted in having a foundation based around life insurance, A, it's been around for 200 years and people very wealthy people have grown their wealth using that. But it also has a lot to do with the fact that the companies that are behind it are the biggest companies in the world. Bigger than oil companies, bigger than banks, insurance companies are massive. And that, sh that allows you to sleep at night, Buck, because you're in a situation there where you know that these companies in the end are going to pay off when there's a death benefit. Right. They're contractually liable to do so. They have to do it. So anyway, that is good stuff. I want to thank you again for being on the show, uh, Tim. Uh, and, Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, try to stay healthy and, uh, uh, you know, enjoy your time at, uh, at home as you're in shelter. Right. Thank you. <laughs> we'll be right back. 
Welcome back to the show, everyone. Now, a lot of people have been asking me what I think, um, you know, what's going to happen with this whole coronavirus thing? How is it going to affect the economy, etc.? Well, as I suggested uh, in the introduction, I think we're going to have uh, a deep recession. I think it'll be sh- relatively short, you know, in the matter of six, eight months, that kind of thing. And then I think we're going to, you know, likely have some kind of strong recovery. And the reason I think we're going to have a strong recovery is because the banks are in good shape. I think they're going to lend. Rates are near zero. Uh, I think that there's going to be a strong uh, strong recovery. Um, let me say that I could be wrong, and there's a lot of opinions out there. I had one interaction um, with a guy on Facebook who, you know, as a real estate investor in his tag, including his name. Um, and he said that he thought the U.S. economy was about to take off because of this stimulus. And um, I said, well, um, maybe uh, I'm bullish too, but not for the next six months. And he said, we can agree to disagree. And I was thinking to myself, oh, yeah, we can definitely do that. And I hope you're right. But how in the world is this economy going to boom within the next six months? I, I just don't see it. If someone can explain that to me, uh, please shoot me an email and explain how that would happen. Um, you know, the problem with the idea is that we're probably several weeks or months uh, away from any sort of level of normal commerce uh, coming back to the U.S., right? I mean, what if what if uh, the, you know, two or three, you know, say two weeks from now or a week from now, as you know, some states are showing that that's when they're going to pull off their shelters, uh, shelter in place orders. I doubt that. But even if they did, do you think people are going to hop on planes and start traveling places and staying in hotels? No, it's not going to happen. Listen, they are. This is going to take a little bit of time to normalize. Um, and so I do think that it's highly unlikely that the economy will be booming within the next uh, several months. However, banks are not in trouble. Near zero rates are going to encourage businesses to expand, move quickly, uh, and move out into a post-corona experience. And that's why I still think there's a, uh, if you look a year out, I still am, am pretty bullish on what I think the economy will look like then. Um, but again, that's just my opinion. I have been wrong before, and I'm sure I'll be wrong again. But when I look at what's happening, that's my take. Anyway, if you are in Investor Club, make sure you uh, tune in to the ASR uh, guys' webinar this week. If you're not part of Investor Club and you are an accredited investor, make sure you go sign up. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.